Tell you what, I hope you have not been in any hurry to get through Romans, because if you have, you're very disappointed by now. We have taken our time. We could have taken a lot longer time, believe me. This is a book that we could easily have studied for three years, and it has been done, and there are books that bear witness to that, but uh, we have only been in it a short 16 weeks, and we've made it to chapter 11, and tonight, by the grace of God, we're going to finish chapter 11. Then we'll be into the fourth and final section of the book. Whenever you mention the word millennium, these days... Anxiety happens. It's a touchy subject. It's been long coming. For a long time now, people have wondered about crossing the threshold of the year 2000. I remember as a kid dreaming about that. I was sitting in bed thinking, how old will I be in the year 2000? What will it be like? Kind of guessing. And there is sort of a millennial madness that happens every thousand years. Scholars have noted that every time it happens. Now, this is only the second time it happens, so A.D. at least. Uh, So we don't have much to draw from, but it has happened nonetheless. It brings a sort of an anxiety for others, a soul-searching about the meaning and purpose of life, and it brings all sorts of predictions. In fact, one group that studies trends noted that there are over 1,100 groups out there that believe the year 2000 has great cosmic implications. I decided to do this today. I got on the internet and I wrote in the term Y2K. I just put it in Alta Vista as a search engine and let her rip. I just wanted to see how much stuff was out there on it. I know there's a lot, but I found that I had, after searching it, 1,836,649 hits on Alta Vista alone. And that the search engine, when I did that, drew up 14 of its own Y2K search option categories at the top of of the header. There is a heightened anxiety, and we, we talked a little bit about that last time. A lot of people are predicting the end of civilization as we know it, and and you should know that a thousand years ago they did the same thing. A thousand years ago there was such a furor over the year 1000, they thought this is it. This is the end of civilization as we know it. They didn't have the internet to show that, but it it was pervasive. Psychology Today had an article that said, quote, legend has it that at midnight, January 1st, in the year 1000, the entire population of Iceland converted en masse to Christianity in the belief that they were about to experience the apocalypse. At the same time in Rome, many expected the end of the world and prepared themselves in various ways, including giving away all of their possessions, doing penance, mortifying their flesh, wearing sackcloth and ashes. There is a millennial madness that has happened of late, Rather than a giving away of possessions, however, there's a mass hoarding of such possessions. Well, I'm not here tonight to talk about Y2K, but to talk about why another K, the millennium. That's what we mentioned last week as we were going through Romans 11, hoping to finish it out. We failed there, but we made it down barely to verse 25. We talked about God fulfilling his promises to 
the nation that he chose out of every other nation on earth. And, and I didn't get a chance to finish out that topic and even to balance out the topic because it is controversial. But I believe the Bible teaches in a literal thousand-year period, a millennium, in which God will fulfill all of his promises to the nation of Israel, during which time the Messiah will reign from Mount Zion, according to Psalm 2 and Isaiah 2, for a thousand-year period. I base that on a method, and uh, you practice this method all the time. It's about time you learn what the method is. It's called a grammatico-historical way of viewing the Bible. Now, I don't care if you ever remember that term, but I care that you view the Scripture a certain way, that you view it as God's Word, that it's complete, it's inerrant, it's authoritative. It gives you um, a blueprint for the future, even though there is some argument as to how that blueprint unfolds and what the symbols in the blueprint mean. It's the Word of God. And so we read it and we interpret it with a grammatico-slash-historical interpretation. That is, we believe that it means what it says, it says what it means. And so we look at things like nouns and verbs and adjectives, and just the normal way the information is presented, and we take into consideration things like context, history, etc. And we interpret the text based on that stuff. So most evangelical believers, of which you happen to be in that camp, look at the Bible and interpret it literally. You read it and it says Jesus went to Jerusalem. You don't put any weird interpretation that Jesus ascended in his experience. You mean that he went literally to a place in the Bible and in history called Jerusalem. I take that all the way to the future restoration of the nation of Israel. I don't play around with it. I don't say that Israel is mentioned and the restoration is mentioned, but it doesn't really mean that. I just think it means what it says and says what it means. Vance Havner, excuse me, Vance Havner wrote one time, and I love this, it's always easier to understand what the Bible says than to understand what somebody thinks the Bible means. It's best to just read it at face value. And so, if you say we read the Bible and interpret it literally, but we don't interpret prophecy literally, I ask you, on what basis? On what basis can you do that? You have to just decide to do that. There is no basis to do that. It is arbitrary, it is not consistent, and you will open up a Pandora's box and you'll have large sections of the Bible that you will have absolutely no clue as to what they mean. So if a thousand doesn't mean a thousand years, Revelation 20, if 42 months in Revelation doesn't mean 42 months, if um, 1,600 and so many days, uh, 1,290 days don't mean 1,290 days, and if the beast doesn't refer to the beast and the false prophet doesn't refer to the false prophet and seven churches doesn't mean seven churches, then pray tell what does it mean? We have major, major problems. So we have a specific period dealing with Israel called the millennium. Now, it'll interface with other things, other nations, but principally the nation of Israel. By the way, and we mentioned this last week, but, you know, I even forgot what I said last week, so I'm sure you forgot most everything. 
Some of the early church fathers, like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, believed, even before there were other interpretations that came, that there would be a time when Jesus would return to this earth and literally from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion, rule over Israel, fulfill the promises to the nation of Israel, and rule the world, literally, in a historical fashion. Now, uh, look down at verse 17. I know we covered it, but, you know, I said we wanted to get to verse 25 last week, and we just barely squeezed that in and stopped. But verse 17, some, not all, some of the branches, that is, Israel, the tree, the olive tree, some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in. And then in verse 23, it says, God is able to graft them in again. And that has been his working premise in this chapter. Yes, Israel forfeited her belief in the Messiah as Jesus as their Messiah. Yes, Israel has been cast away because of unbelief, but God is a big, powerful God who is able to graft them in again and fulfill every promise he made to them. Now, an olive tree is a great figure of the nation of Israel. First of all, because an olive tree is one of those trees that just keeps living no matter what. And over years and years and years, it can grow for literally thousands of years. If you live that long, you could go back and find the olive tree you planted 2,000 years ago still there. And I mentioned last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is an olive tree that is dated back to 18 or 1,900 years ago. It's not 2,000 years old because the Romans chopped all the trees in and around Jerusalem down. But we have old olive trees. However, as they get older, they are less productive. Hence, they graft newer branches from younger trees into the old tree, open up the bark, stick it in, tie it firmly, so that it becomes productive once again. God grafted us in to the Jewish nation, the promise of the Messiah, the eternal promise of eternal life, we're grafted in. But God is able to graft in the nation of Israel once again. So, those two truths, one is tragic, one is glorious. The tragic truth is that Israel rejected Christ. The glorious truth is that opened a door to us so that the rest of the world, non-Jewish people, can believe in a Jewish Messiah and his finished work on a cross and get saved and go to heaven and partake of that great promise. That's the good news. The other side of the good news is though they rejected Christ, the door has been opened to the Gentiles, after it's all said and done and God is done dealing with the Gentiles, he's going to go back and finish what he started with the Jewish nation. And that, that took us down to verse 25. Hardness in part has happened unto Israel until the full number of Gentiles are come in. And we had to stop there. But I left you hanging with a question. Because in talking about the millennial reign of Christ, it begs a question. The obvious question is, what is the point? Why bother? I mean, why the bother of Jesus coming back to the earth, setting up an intermittent state of reigning for a thousand years on the earth, restoring it, etc., only to destroy it completely and then build a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem. Why? Why not just come back, 
wipe out all the enemies, and just set up eternity, the eternal state, immediately. Why a millennium? Why is it needed? And I'll give you three reasons. Number one, the millennium is a necessity to redeem creation from the curse. This creation, and it's, it's pretty nice, it's beautiful, but a curse has been placed on it because of what? Sin, the fall of man in Genesis, caused a curse to fall upon the planet Earth. And that curse has been with us ever since. There's pain in childbirth, there's sweat on the brow, there's thorns and nettles all around us in the environment. The earth, beautiful, but cursed. Not only that, but the curse will be turned up to ten, so to speak, in the tribulation period. If you think it's cursed now, just thank God that as a believer you won't be here during the tribulation period because the curse will be turned up full blast. It'll be messy. The millennium will be God's answer to our prayer when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The millennium will answer that prayer. I mean, who else can fix the earth except the one who made it? We haven't done a very good job with it. We've sort of trashed it. We've made some beautiful things and beautiful cities, and yet we are strained environmentally. And in the tribulation period, it will be worse, and only God can fix it. So it will be a restored earth, restored to nearly its original splendor and beauty. Today, the environment is a huge concern. That is, if there is any politically correct issue and subject to deal with, it's stand up for the environment. And we're talking about all of the chlorofluorocarbons that have hindered our atmosphere and depleted the ozone layer and it's causing an uh, increased heat over the earth, some are suspecting. We're worried about acid rain ever since the 1970s and how we pollute uh, crops and waters, oceans. Life is dying. We're upsetting the biosphere. So we've messed the planet up. It's a big, big concern. But if you think we've messed it up, where do you see what happens when God does something to it in the tribulation period? First of all, it's God's earth. And he will absolutely trash it. Read Revelation 6 through 19. And a third of mankind is wiped out and everything green or a third of it is destroyed and rivers and oceans. It becomes horrible. So the millennium becomes a necessity to reverse the curse from the beginning of Genesis furthered in the book of Revelation, the tribulation period. How will he do that? Now, I'm not going to go through all these, but here's the sampling of what you can expect coming to an earth near you. This is what's going to happen during the millennium to reverse the curse and bring beauty to it. Number one, the animal kingdom will be tamed. There will not be the predatory instincts among animals. Your cat and dog can hang out. About a year ago, a cat killed, a uh, cat killed, a coyote killed our cat. And I've sort of had deep scars and vengeance in my heart toward all coyotes ever since. <laughs> but there'll come a time when that won't be a problem. It says in Isaiah chapter 11, in that day, this is Isaiah 11, 6 through 8, in that day the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard and the goat will be at peace. Calves and yearlings will be safe among lions 
and a little child will lead them all. The cattle will graze among bears, cubs and calves will lie down together, lions will eat grass as livestock do, babies will crawl safely among poisonous snakes, yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes and pull it out unharmed. All that to describe the curse removed from off the earth. Animals tame, docile, no need for zoos or wild animal parks with cages or confinement. That instinct will be gone. I was in Kenya some years back with Franklin Graham, and a friend of ours took us in his Land Rover out to see some wildlife. And we were coming across the bush when we spotted a lion. And so we pulled up about six feet from the lion, and I started to roll down my window, and the driver said, Ho! And putting my lens on the camera, I'm going to be Joe Photographer. And he goes, Be very, very careful. This is not a zoo. And uh, you stick an appendage outside that vehicle where that lion can get to it, you won't have it any longer. And so at that point, I suddenly thought, in the millennium, this won't be a problem. It is a problem now, and I respect that. But the animal kingdom will be tamed. Another thing you can expect is the entire biosphere will be lush green. Wouldn't that be great? Isaiah 35, even the wilderness will rejoice in those days. The desert will blossom with flowers. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel pastures in the plain of Sharon. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness. Streams will water the desert. The parched ground will become a pool. Springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh grass and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived. So a change in the environment of the earth, the crust itself, the biosphere itself. Three, there will be no disabilities. There will be healing at that time. Isaiah 35, same text. He will open the eyes of the blind, unstop the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer. And those who cannot speak will shout and sing. Perpetual health. No need for doctors. No need for HMOs. No need for Advil. Total healing. A fourth thing, there will be longevity with that health. Isaiah 65, never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. No need for Longevity magazine. No need for those fancy creams. No need for going to a surgeon and saying, stretch my face so far. Longevity. Fifth, there will be world peace. Finally, and only then, will there be lasting world peace. The Gallup organization ask people what their pressing questions are. And one of the the most often asked questions by Americans is, will there ever be world peace? Is that even a possible option? There will be in the millennium. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord will settle international disputes. All the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. All wars will stop and military training will come to an end. Or as the King James says, neither shall they learn to make war anymore. 
a friend of ours who goes to this fellowship, is in the war college back east, studying to be one day a general, learning war, learning about wars in the past and strategies in the present and predicting the future. There'll come a time when that doesn't exist. I can't wait. That phrase is put over the doors of the United Nations. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but it hasn't happened yet. The wars continue. In essence, it will be paradise regained, and if you know Jesus Christ, you'll be a part of it. Two Christians were talking together, and the first Christian says, I have a one-way ticket to heaven, and I'm never coming back here. And the second one says, oh, but I have a return ticket. And if you say you have a one-way ticket, you're going to miss a lot. I have a return ticket. Not only will I be caught up in glory, but I'm coming back with my Christ. Revelation chapter 19. And I'm going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. He had the idea. So, why do we need a millennium? To reverse the curse, to redeem creation from the curse and from judgment. And, by the way, I was thinking about this before I came out, and Romans 8 came to mind. We read it, but let me remind you of Romans 8. Look at, if you are there, turn back a couple pages. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not because of, but uh, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I think what Paul had in mind is what we're speaking about. There's a second reason why a millennium is necessary, and this sort of plays at the very heart of Romans chapter 11. And that is so that God can fulfill all of the promises he made to Israel nationally. If you recall back in your Old Testament, God made a promise to David for a kingdom. Then God confirmed that with an oath. We read that psalm as our opening psalm this evening, Psalm 89. He made a promise to David for a future literal kingdom. He confirmed it with an oath. He sealed it by recording it in the Psalms and in virtually all of the prophets, not one of them missed it, predicted a future literal kingdom for the nation of Israel. Now, by the way, um, those who spiritualize all this stuff will say, well, there's, it's a spiritual kingdom. You know, the throne of David is simply Jesus, who is of the lineage of David, is in heaven right now. There are 59 references to David in the New Testament. Not one of them ties the throne of David to the present session of Christ right now at the right hand of the throne of God. Not one of them. Not even closely tied to it. So it can't be spiritualized. If you say it is, then I will draw you back to the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself. If there's no literal fulfillment of the throne of David then why, in the Bible, Matthew and Luke, do we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ presented from Joseph and Mary all the way back to David? I mean, a lot of attention is given here. And we know that Joseph goes back to King David through Solomon, but the bloodline is cursed through Jeconiah, it says in Jeremiah something. And so the bloodline from Mary goes through Nathan, another son of David, not Solomon, so she is of the lineage of David, but not of the cursed bloodline that Joseph was from. That's okay that Joseph is. He was merely the foster father of Christ. A curse was given to the bloodline of David through Jeconiah. God got around his curse 
by making sure Jesus was born of a virgin through a woman whose bloodline was perfect and not part of the curse. Why all of that meticulous stuff if the throne of David was not a literal throne? Okay, enough of this then. It's, uh, it's to fulfill all of God's promises to Israel. The millennium is phase one of eternity. It's where God takes all the promises to Israel, fulfills them, and um, he'll reign a thousand years in Zion. When that's all over, he'll destroy the heaven, the earth, make a new one. Revelation 21, the end of 2 Peter. Not only that, but when he makes a new heaven and a new earth, he makes a city come out of heaven called what? New Jerusalem. Why did he pick New Jerusalem? In honor of the covenant, I believe, that he gave to Israel. Just like you have Jersey in England, you have New Jersey in the United States, you have York in the Old World, New York, Mexico, New Mexico. This is New Jerusalem that will come out of heaven. And there will be 12 gates, and the names will be the 12 tribes of Israel, all in honor of that covenant. There's a third and final reason a millennium is needed. And for this, I want you to turn to Revelation 20. The millennium will reveal the depths of man's rebellious nature. That's right. For so long, people have said, we are the way we are because of our environment. If we had a perfect environment, we'd all be perfect. And God will strike a death blow to that philosophy by the end of the millennium. Verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Just picture this. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the abuso, the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he could not deceive the nations. He could deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. We read that and we go, yes! But after these things, uh-oh, he must be released for a little while. Verse 7, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as of the sand of the sea. This verse is one of the imponderable events in Scripture. You read this and you go, why? Why, once you have the guy bound and chained, why let him out again? Right? That's a tough text. I will admit it. It won't keep me from teaching on it, but it's an imponderable. It's like, man, what's going on? Louis Sperry Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, was asked this question. Why would God release Satan the second time? Schaefer said, well, you tell me why he let him go the first time, and I'll tell you why he let him go the second time. That's equally as puzzling, isn't it? Now follow this carefully. Everyone who makes it into the millennium will be a believer. Because we read before this in Revelation, all of the wicked are destroyed by the day of the Lord. They're destroyed. The only ones that make it into the millennium, the 144,000, the number of Gentiles that um, escape the wrath of the Antichrist and are spared by God, all of those that enter into the millennium will be saved individuals. 
they will have physical bodies for a thousand years till after the thousand years they will have physical bodies. They'll get into the millennium. There'll be an aging process, but it'll last a long time as we read in Isaiah. They are going to have kids in the millennium. The kids they produce will be sinners. I didn't mean evil people. I just mean everybody's a sinner. Uh, natural, physical people can only produce sinners, fallen beings, until there is the resurrection. They have the capacity of choice. Many during the millennium will choose to follow Christ. Many will not. And here's the point. Even utopia itself, even a perfect environment of no war and beautiful environments all around, peace, utopia, Christ reigning from Mount Zion, even that doesn't make up for what is innate within man, and that is the sin nature. And so we're saying, well, I am the way I am because of my environment. No, you are the way you are, and I am the way I am because I'm a sinner by nature and also by choice. The reason people reject Christ isn't their environment. It's because they love their sin and they don't want anybody to rule over them. That's what Jesus said. They love darkness rather than light, and they will not come to the light because their deeds are evil, lest their deeds should be reproved, exposed. So they will cling to their sin, and some will reject Christ. And as soon as Satan gets out of prison, after a thousand years, the first thing he does is start his rebellion all over again. A thousand years of imprisonment doesn't change the nature of the devil. He's still the devil. And it doesn't change the nature of humanity either. And there will be this strange but definite rebellion at the end of the thousand-year reign. So it shows the depths of man's rebellious nature. Having said all that, that past, verse 25 is where we skimmed and closed. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until... Ooh, I'm so glad there's that word, aren't you? He doesn't close the door all the way. Israel rejected Christ. Israel has been cast away until... Until what? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. If you have an NIV, it says the full number of Gentiles has come in. There's a number out there. God knows what it is. We don't. When he'll be done dealing with non-Jewish people. That's what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years. Since Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah, They've been set aside, not all of them, some of the branches have, not all of them, but primarily he's dealing with non-Jewish people, Gentiles right now. This started early on in the book of Acts. The early church was comprised of what first? Jews, all of them. Until Peter goes to a guy's house in Caesarea named Cornelius, and he didn't even want to go. The Spirit of God told him to go. He saw a vision. And so he leaves Joppa, goes to Cornelius. There's this guy who's been praying, this God-fearer. He almost proselytized into Judaism, but had a sincere praying heart. He was a non-Jew. He was a Gentile. And Peter felt very skittish about even talking to the guy, let alone going in and talking to him about the gospel. But he did. A problem developed. It happened in the early church. And in Acts chapter 15, there's this first assembly conference of leadership in the early church in Jerusalem over the issue of Gentiles. And there's one group who says, 
hey, unless these Gentiles become Jews, they can't go to heaven. And so Peter says, excuse me, you have never kept the law. Your father's never kept all the law. And God told me by his own mouth to go preach to the Gentiles, and I did. Then after he sat down, Paul stood up with Barnabas and says, let me tell you, we've been on a missionary journey all around the Roman world, and we preach the Gospels in synagogues, were largely rejected by the Jews, and mostly Gentiles have followed our ministry and believe in Christ. So the argument goes back and forth, and James stands up to end the arguments. James was the leader of the early church, not Peter. He wasn't the first pope. James was, if anybody. Stands up and he says, you know what, guys? What we are seeing happen through Peter and Paul is exactly what the scripture said would happen. Listen to what James says. Acts chapter 15, verses 14 through 17. Simon Peter has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tabernacle. Its ruins I will rebuild, I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. He, James picked up on it. He goes, oh, this is the plan of God. The prophets even mentioned that God will do a work among the Gentiles and then he will restore David's fallen tent. I get it now. This is the plan of God. Now that has continued from that point all the way up till now. God's been dealing with Gentiles. One day soon, it'll be over. The fullness of the Gentiles, or the full number, will be come in. And uh, God knows the last one. I don't. I always think about that at an altar call. Maybe this is it. Hasn't been yet. But when it is, then God's dealing with the Gentiles as a dispensation, as it's called, will end. God will open the doors once again to deal and gather the Jewish nation in. Now, before we hop on and finish the rest of this chapter, there's another term I don't want you to confuse with the fullness of the Gentiles. It's called the times of the Gentiles. Have you ever heard that? Times of the Gentiles? Jesus used that term, Luke 21. The fullness of the Gentiles deals with God calling people all around the world to be saved. The times of the Gentiles has to do with non-Jewish rule over the city of Jerusalem. This is what Jesus said, Luke chapter 21, verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles began in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar and his army surrounded Jerusalem and took the Judean Jews captive for 70 years. After that, there has been a succession of people ruling Jerusalem. Remember the book of Daniel? The big statue? The night vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw and then the vision that Daniel had? They were basically the same, but he saw a succession of kingdoms. Daniel gave the interpretation. There was Babylon. There was Persia, there was Greece, and there was Rome. They're even named in Daniel. 
The succession of world empires would bear rule over the earth until a stone cut from heaven would come down, destroy all of these empires, and it would be a nation that would fill the earth, and God would bring in righteousness forever. And so the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romes took the Romes, the Romans, have been in control of Jerusalem. It's been under Gentile occupation for a long time and will continue even in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist persecutes the Jews. The Antichrist builds a temple, crosses the covenant, goes after them. Now some people have said the times of the Gentiles ended June of 1967. Six-day war. The Jews, once again, for the first time since 586 B.C., had sovereignty over the city of Jerusalem. So they say, well, it's ended. If you go to the Temple Mount, sort of the, the, the center of it all, there is not a Jewish flag on the Temple Mount. It's the third holiest site to the Muslims. It's the Mosque of Omar and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And it's under the control of the of the Arabs, of the Muslims. And Jerusalem is a divided city. And the negotiations right now that are hot and heavy are over the city of Jerusalem. So some have said it's, it's, it's ended and it's a sign that the fullness of the Gentiles has ended. But I see the times of the Gentiles as ending when Jesus Christ comes again. Spin it either way. I guess in the end we'll find out. So, Verse 26. By the way, I believe that soon, very soon, the fullness of the Gentiles will end. God will find that last person column. The rapture of the church, I think, will happen simultaneous to that. Then the 70th week of Daniel will happen, seven years, which is called the tribulation period. And we're in on it. Verse 26. And so, as he brings it to a conclusion, all Israel shall be saved... As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This does not mean every Jew who's ever lived in history will automatically be saved because he's part of the natural olive tree. But in speaking of all that we have prophetically, the entire nation that survives God's judgment and is kept by God's judgment during that time, the tribulation period, they will be saved. There's 144,000 that we know are spared. They're sealed. They're kept from judgment. There's two witnesses in the book of Revelation that are Jewish witnesses that presumably lead the 144,000 to the Lord. They're sealed. They're protected. And in Zechariah, it predicts, they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So Israel, in the end, in the tribulation, will be saved, will be brought in, and God will rule and reign. Verse 27, For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins concerning the gospel. I should have paused there. That's the end of a thought. When I take away their sins, period. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the Father. Isn't that a strange verse? Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. The Jews, as a nation, as a nation, 
has rejected Jesus Christ being their Messiah. They said, you're not going to rule and reign over us. Because of that, in a sense, they're antagonistic toward you. They're your enemy. They're, they're not pro-Christian. But in their rejection, in their being your enemy, it's opened up a great opportunity for us to be saved. And in the end, since God made a promise, it says to the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, David, etc., God's going to make it good. And so it says, concerning election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. God made a promise to the fathers. God elected Israel. God will fulfill his promise nationally to them. And so this dichotomy. Where does that leave us? How should we treat the Jew? Is there any room in Christianity for anti-Semitism? Is there any room for the notion of the Crusades or the Inquisition that is a blot upon the Christian church? Not at all. There's an anonymous poem that says, How odd of God to choose the Jew, but not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God and hate the Jew. There's no room at all in our thinking for being against Israel. Now I want to balance that out just a little bit because most evangelicals are on the bandwagon of supporting Israel. But don't be blind thinking that everything Israel does as a nation now is perfect. Far from it. That kind of thinking can make us insensitive to the need of the Arab. They're not right on every issue. God will restore them nationally, but we must love the Jew and we must love the Arab because God loves the Jew, God loves the Arab, God loves those in Iraq, in Jordan, in the West Bank, in Sudan, everyone. And we must never have this love of the promise of God fulfilled in Israel blind us from evangelism to all peoples. Verse 29 gets better. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. William Newell, who wrote a commentary in Romans, called this verse a source of endless joy. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, irreversible, unchangeable. We often apply this to ourselves when, in fact, in its immediate context, it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God's promises to the nation of Israel. God's gifts to them. What are the gifts? Romans chapter 9. There's the fathers. There's the promises. There's the giving of the law, the prophets, the, the Messiah came through them, etc. That's the gifts. And the callings is God's divine election of this nation that he will fulfill in the future. So God's call and God's gifts and God's calling are irrevocable. However, it does have a secondary application to all of God's children. It reveals a God. It reveals a God who refuses to let failure change his determination to bless. I was looking at this verse and just mulling over it today, and the more I did, I thought, wow, wow, cool, epic, awesome. It reveals a God who is determined to bless people irregardless of all of their crud. Didn't God call Israel stiff-necked, stubborn, disobedient, complained in the wilderness for 40 years, gets into the land of Canaan, 
starts doing whatever is right in their own eyes, eventually gets taken captive because of their idolatry in Babylon, but God brings them back. They reject their Messiah, Jesus. They choose false messiahs through history, and God says, I know, but I'm determined to work with them. That's why Newell says this verse is the source of endless joy. God's calling is irreversible. God will persist in his covenant with Abraham and David. And just a reminder of how that's going to come down. There's 144,000 Jews from 12 tribes of Israel sealed and protected from the Antichrist during the tribulation period. Second, Jesus will rule and reign from Mount Zion with those people over the whole world. Psalm 2, Isaiah chapter 2. And finally, in the eternal state, the new Jerusalem that has those 12 gates with the tribes written on it. Verse 30 makes it personal now. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This is so like Paul. Paul was one of those brilliant thinkers. You know, remember when Paul said, you see your calling, brethren, there's not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise after the flesh who are called. He was an exception to that. There are not many, but of the few that were brilliant and deep, Paul was one of them. And so Paul plums the theological depths of election and sovereignty and free will and leaves our heads spinning. And in the end, he comes out going, praise the Lord. It's like he's uncovering these truths and he's climbing up Mount Everest. And now he reaches the top. And he goes, you know, this is amazing. And God chose the Jews. They rejected Christ. That opened the door to the Gentiles. But God's going to still work through the Jews. Wow. He's like surveying the whole land. And he just loses it. His, get this, his theology turns into a doxology of praise. Now this should always be the end result of Bible study. If your Bible study makes you arrogant because you think now you know something that others don't know as much as I do, you really have missed the whole boat. But if your theology causes your heart to sing and rejoice and get excited, and with that excitement seek to enlighten others, you're on the right boat. His theology led to a doxology. Notice how many times mercy is mentioned. Four times. Verse 30, you were disobedient, you've obtained mercy through their disobedience. That's one. Even so, these also have been disobedient that through the mercy, that's two, shown you, they also may obtain mercy. That's three. God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. I love God's mercy. The basic sense of elios, which is the Greek word for mercy, is to have compassion on somebody who's really needy. And we need salvation. We need help. And God in his mercy provided it. That's the idea, compassion. Mercy is when I don't get something I should get. If my dad says, ooh, you deserve a whooping, but I won't do it. 
That's mercy. Now, I've given you the example of speeding before, probably because this is close to home for a lot of us. You drive down the street, you're speeding. Justice is when you get a ticket. That's justice. Now, we don't want justice when we drive. None of us does. Admit it. Nobody wants justice. We always want justice for somebody else. How many times have you said, Lord, just please send a police officer to arrest that person for that <laughs> stupid thing he just did? I've said that. You have too, but I'll admit it. Maybe you won't. But That's justice. They deserve it. Mercy is when you're pulled over and the police says, you were speeding 20 miles over the speed limit, but I won't give you a ticket. That's mercy. Justice is you get a ticket. Mercy is you deserve it, but it's withheld. Mercy is related to justice and another word, grace. That's where you get something you don't deserve. It's not just withholding judgment. It's giving you perks. It's giving you something. And so the officer pulls you over, says you were speeding 20 miles over the speed limit, writes you a ticket, pays the fine himself, and it goes on his record. <laughs> Ain't never going to happen. But that would be grace. Justice happens on the roads, sometimes mercy, but not grace. But it happened at the cross. In fact, did you know at the cross all of these things were in operation, justice, mercy, and grace? This begs another question. One would ask, how could God be merciful and just at the same time? If we deserve justice for sins committed, if God just says, ah, don't worry about it, that's not just. He has contradicted his character of being just. Just like if you have a mass murderer and you just say, oh, well, do you feel bad? Yeah, okay, don't worry about it. You go, wait a minute, that's not justice. So how can you have mercy and justice at the same time? Let it be known that God never winks at sin. God is always just, even when he extends mercy. And that's what the cross, that's why it was a necessity. That's why it was a need. At the cross, justice was served. Somebody in our place had all of the punishment of sin put upon himself. Justice was served in Jesus. By that act, mercy was extended to us so that we'd never have to get into judgment. And grace, we have eternal life besides. All of them served, even justice, mercy. And grace. Verse 34, or who is, for who has known the mind of the Lord? <laughs> who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it should be repaid to him? Who's known the mind of the Lord? God thinks at a level we can't even get remotely close to. Here we are, little peewee people on earth trying to figure out the great things of God unless it's revealed to us there's just no way and yet some of it is revealed to us but you know sometimes we get a little puffed up who has known the mind of the Lord the text I always bring into this is Deuteronomy 29 29 the hidden things belong to the Lord our God but those that are revealed belong to us and our children forever Unless God reveals himself, the self-disclosure through the scriptures, we're hopeless. But he has revealed. Yet, 
You know, David said, the Lord knows my downsittings, my uprisings. He knows thoughts before I think them. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. Can't even get close. So he says, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Be honest. I bet you have. I have. I haven't known the mind of God. I haven't been omniscient, omnipotent, yet I've counseled God on a number of occasions. <laughs> God, I know you're busy, but I've got time for you. Come into my office. Sit down. Now listen, you had a great opportunity right here, and you passed it up. There are things that I thought God should have done, and he didn't march to my drumbeat. He didn't fulfill my expectations. And I've counseled God. Ignorant as I am, not knowing the mind of God. Ah, we're at the end. For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Boy, there's a lot in that. That could be a whole message. Of him, through him, to him are all things. There was a time when there was nothing but God. There was no earth, there was no sun, nothing. Nobody came up with any ideas and God said, yeah, that's a good idea, I'll, I'll do that. There was nobody there to give advice. It was just God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect Trinitarian harmony. All energy, all atomic structure, pulsars, everything came from God. He's the originator of everything. And, and he had no raw material to work with. He made something out of nothing. Ex nihilo, or out of nothing, God created everything. Of him are all things. Through him are all things, and to him are all things. In other words, we exist for one reason, to bring glory to God. You are part of the plan of God. Remember, that's the third major section in Romans. The wrath of God, the grace of God, now the plan of God. This concludes the third section. Next time we'll get into the will of God. But you're part of the plan of God. And in all of the discovery, these 16 weeks, of the depths of all of God's wisdom, I hope you stand absolutely humbled and staggered at the fact that you're a plan of, of God. You're part of God's plan. The plan of God for the future includes you. Think about it. Get, get some perspective here. You are one of 5.7 billion other yous on this clay sphere called the Earth. That's 8,000 miles in diameter, going 450,000 miles an hour through space, spinning on its axis at 1,000 miles per hour. You're on that clay thing, one of 5.7 billion people. If you go out in the daytime, you notice there's a bright light up there called the sun. It's 93 million miles away. It's the nearest star. It gives light. It gives heat. It, it gives the life to this biosphere, but it's a little bit bigger than the earth. It's not 8,000 miles in diameter. It's 860,000 miles in diameter. In fact, you could take 1.2 million earths and stick it inside the sun and still have room for them to bounce around. If you go out at night, you see another ball hanging up there called the moon. It's much closer. In fact, you could walk to it if you had a ladder. It's 200,000 miles away. 
And if you were going at a good clip 24 hours a day, you could make it to the moon in 27 years. Pretty close. Now let's say you could find a contraption that traveled really fast, like the speed of light. It'd have to be faster than uh, the newest Porsche engine, just amazing. It has, it has to go 186,000 miles per second. It's the speed of light. If you had that contraption, you could go to the moon, not in 27 years, but one and a half seconds. Boom, you're there. You can make it in four minutes to the sun. But let's say you're so excited being on this contraption that you want to see how big the world that you live in is. So you want to find the nearest neighbor star after the sun, which happens to be Alpha Centauri. It's 25 trillion miles away from you. It'll take you 4.3 light years. That is, if you travel 186,000 miles and travel toward it, you'll be there in four years and four months. And you haven't even gotten out of the front door. You discover that there's not only those two stars, but a hundred billion stars in your galaxy, in just the Milky Way galaxy. hundred billion stars. And so you want to see how big it is. It's 10,000 light years thick by about 100,000 light years in diameter. So if you're going to go from one end of the Milky Way to the other end of the Milky Way, going 186,000 miles per second, it's going to take you 100,000 years to do it. And if you have the time, <laughs> and you make it to the end of the Milky Way galaxy, you haven't even left the front yard. Because there are now 100 billion other galaxies beyond that for you to explore. Now go back to that one little speck of dirt of 5.7 billion people, and you're one of them. And you think the world revolves around you? You think you're here for God just to make you happy? <laughs> Paul was right when he said, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. You have one purpose on earth, that's to glorify God, period. That's why you're here. If you fulfill that, you'll be happy. If you don't, you will be miserable. Even though you have in our Constitution, Declaration of Independence, the right to pursue happiness, you'll never find it. Till you glorify God. Because that's why he made you. So, a little perspective adjustment. Next time you think everything revolves around you. No, everything revolves around God. And by his grace, he let you and I be a speck of that plan. Find it. Fulfill it. And you'll be happy.